Hello, and welcome to Useful Idiots. I'm one of your hosts, Katie Halper. And I'm the other host, Aaron Nate. How are you, Katie? I'm good. You? I'm great. I'm great. Cool. It's holiday time. Holiday time. Yeah. I, uh, That's all I got to say about that. It's holiday time. That's all you got to say. You don't know which <laughs> yeah. holiday Aaron's talking about. You don't know which one he celebrates. But it is the most wonderful time of the year, whether you celebrate Kwanzaa, Christmas, or uh, Hanukkah. I actually did a little latkes party. I forgot that latkes are for... Well, I don't know if I could say I forgot. I lo- Okay. What's one thing you really got to have at a latkes party besides the latkes? Uh, it's been a long time since I had a latke. Uh, isn't, isn't applesauce a really big thing? Yes. But besides yeah. the food, there was uh-huh. applesauce, there was sour cream, there were latkes. Uh-huh. What's, okay. A latkes party can also be called a Hanukkah party. Mm-hmm. So what do you need for Hanukkah? Oh, uh, the, uh, the menorah. The menorah, which yeah. I forgot. <laughs> so I had some people over for latkes, but we just made a makeshift one out of some tea candles. Hanukkah, I think, should be rebranded and changed into celebrating the time when you and your friends made a makeshift menorah rather than celebrating the time when the fictional time, because I, I think right. all this is fiction, when Jews uh, somehow saved the temple. I don't know. I forgot the story well, now. They got oil to burn for eight days, right? Yeah. Every Hanukkah from now on, I'm going to be celebrating you that, making right. a makeshift menorah. That's that's what I'm going to be honoring. That's the real Hanukkah miracle. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, if you sign up at usefulidiots.substack.com, you get uh, bonus content, including our extended interviews, also our Thursday throwdown, and you can take part in the absurd arena where you interact with other useful idiots and ask us questions. So, Wilson, what do we have this week from the absurd arena? So, for the holiday edition of the absurd arena, the useful idiots are giving out presents to our favorite politicians who have sucked all year. And mm. we asked, what what presents would you give to each politician? So we got a couple of similar answers. Uh, J.L. Albrecht said, every politician who voted for military aid to Ukraine should get an all-expenses-paid, fun-filled weekend in exotic Bakhmut, Ukraine. And who wouldn't want to go? Ukraine is crushing the Russians in Bakhmut, the Western press constantly says. Russia is out of missiles and ammunition everywhere. What's the danger? Yeah, sure. It's true. Uh, That's a good idea. Let's send all these politicians to Ukraine to see for themselves the fruits of their labors of uh, funneling all this money into the weapons industry. Let's do it. I'm on board with that. Yeah. So useful idiot Juno Nana had a similar idea. They would gift a year of living the life of an American citizen after losing their low wage, no benefits job and home. So that would be a great gift for every lawmaker to to have, to actually experience what it's like to be a real person and not a servant of the elite. I totally support that gift, too. That's a great idea. I mean, I, I agree with Aaron. I'd say for all the pals. And yes. finally, useful idiot Howie said, unnecessarily large dildos for every representative and senator. I mean, that's such a subjective thing. I don't know how you define unnecessarily large, but sure, that's a good way to spread the holiday cheer. Katie, I appreciate your dildo inclusivity there. You're really trying to acknowledge that the size of a dildo really depends on yeah. uh, on the eyes of the beholder. So really, exactly, yeah. What constitutes a, nece- a, a unnecessary large dildo? You know, yeah, that's we we, we can't yeah. decide that. No, yeah, fair enough. Well, so yeah. sorry, sorry, Howie. No absolutes. Yeah. Sorry, we're giving everyone the dildo size that they want. Exactly of their choice. Yeah. 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 All right. Well, that has been the absurd <laughs> arena for this week. Yeah. Good job, guys. All righty. So we go to the four basic food groups. Let's do it. What do we have for Democrats suck? Okay. So for Democrats suck, we have an interesting piece of uh, primary source evidence. We actually have a video. It was posted by Mint Press, although Mint Press did not take this video. Uh, Someone named Damon Magsudi did. Um, And let's just play the video. And this is Joe Biden at an event in California. Let's play the video. We just don't want any deals with the Mozars. No deals. They don't represent us. They are not our government. So basically, you have a woman at an event in California. She says, President Biden, could you please announce that JCPOA is dead? Can you just announce that? And that's a reference to the 
Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, or otherwise known as the Iran nuclear deal. So he says it's dead. Yeah, he's basically announcing this huge policy shift to someone, to some random person who's asking the question in line. That's like a really big exclusive for this audience member. Right. Oh, my God. The Iran the nuclear deal is officially dead. Yeah, she got a real scoop, a major scoop. This woman waiting, waiting online. Huge scoop. And yes, you know, look, uh, this is embarrassing for people like myself, who one of the reasons why. I was publicly advocating a, uh, a Biden election victory back when he was running against Trump was that I at least thought that on some issues, Biden would be better, including I expected that Biden would return to his own nuclear deal. That's the nuclear deal that was reached under the Obama-Biden administration, right. which Trump killed. So I figured, as Biden had said on the campaign trail, that he would return to it. But he can't even go back to his own deal. And now he's announcing privately to some random person in line that it's dead. Yeah, it's a private-public partnership, I would say. Private-public partnership announcement. Yeah, well... Uh, I don't know if yeah. he knew he was being recorded or what. Yeah, well, it's a great... It's a really interesting way to get the news out that you're killing is, a yeah. vital international arms control treaty to tell some random audience member waiting for you in line. Yeah, it's a really interesting uh, press conference technique. Maybe if he declares World War III, he can announce that to some lucky fan next time he goes home to Delaware or something. Yeah. Yeah. Why not? And this person is obviously a hardliner on Iran. Oh, yeah. Well, they don't want any deals at all with uh, the Iranian government. And uh, they want to obviously keep the sanctions on Iran, which is what this deal was about. The deal was basically Iran uh, limits its nuclear program in exchange for the U.S. stops trying to strangle its people trying to deprive them of the basics like food and medicine by lifting these sanctions. And it worked. The deal was working fine as everyone involved acknowledges Iran was in compliance, but it was Trump who came in and killed it. And Biden is siding with Trump rather than his own prior administration's right. agreement. Um, it, one one thing that's funny is that Biden has this kind of a side kind of under under his breath after the woman says, that we just don't want any deals with the mullahs, no deals, they don't represent us, they're not our government. He says they'll have a nuclear weapon they'll represent. I think he's kind of implying like, okay, it's great that you say that they don't represent you, but they'll represent a nuclear weapon. It, it's almost, He's almost undermining his own position. Uh, yes, yes, he is, is, because the position he's advocating would make it easier for Iran's nuclear program to restart. Now, right. of course, it's the view of US intelligence that Iran has abandoned its nuclear weapons program a long time ago, but it hasn't abandoned its nuclear program, at least now that the U.S. killed the deal. It's resumed uh, the enrichment of uranium, which puts it on an easier path to building a nuclear weapon. In terms of actually building a nuclear weapon, um, there's no sign that it actually wants to do that. But certainly killing the Iran nuclear deal makes it easier for Iran to do that. And so that that is Biden's right. current policy. Yeah. Democrats suck and are surprisingly accessible. When you want to get them to say something. What do we have for Republicans, suck? Well, Congress is about to vote on a new spending bill for Ukraine, another $44 billion. Incidentally, that's like the same price I think that Elon Musk paid for Twitter. So there's a theme this year of exorbitant price tags in the form of $44 billion for, I think, really unnecessary things. But just to show how bipartisan this is, Republicans, there's some talk sometimes that Republicans are going to stand up to the war machine and and uh, not approve all this more money for the military industrial complex. Where here, here is Sen Senator Mitch McConnell, the Senate leader of the Republicans, on his view on funding the proxy war in Ukraine. Making sure the Defense Department can deal <clears throat> with the major threats coming from Russia and China, providing assistance for the Ukrainians to defeat the Russians, that's the number one priority for the United States right now, according to most Republicans. That's sort of how we see the th challenges confronting uh, the country at the moment. So that's Senator Mitch McConnell. He says that the number one priority right now for the U.S. is providing assistance to Ukraine to defeat the Russians. That's certainly the number one priority for the Democrats. And uh, here's Mitch McConnell just voicing how bipartisan this policy is. And let's look at one result of this policy. This is a recent headline in the New York Times. 
military spending surges creating new boom for arms makers, the combination of the war in Ukraine and concern about longer term threats from Russia and China is driving a bipartisan push to increase U.S. capacity to produce weapons. So there it is, folks, bipartisanship in action. And this article in The Times talks about, first of all, just what a great thing the war in Ukraine has been for arms makers. The producer of Stinger missiles says, like, we can't, we haven't, like, we, we're running out of Stingers. We have to make more because they fired so much in Ukraine, which is great for Lockheed Martin. And uh, it also talks about, for the first time, talk of a $1 trillion Pentagon budget, $1 trillion. That, that is now seen as a real possibility in Washington. I mean, it's beautiful. What I like about this Republican suck is that it could be a Democrat suck. It shows how bipartisan this uh, consensus is. It really gives me faith in the bipartisan nature of our political system. It really is. It's a beautiful dance. The dance of war profiteering. Yeah. Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Title Transference aired October 27, 2004. Director James Marshall, writers Todd Slavkin, Darren Swimmer. I really like this episode, and I'm surprised that you don't like it as much as you thought you did. I actually respect your opinion more than I respect my own in general. (laughs) (laughs) When you say things are good and I check them out, they are. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen. Named one of the best personal finance podcasts, The Stacking Benjamin Show with Joe and his friends makes financial literacy fun. I got an email today from the LenPenzo.com HR department. I find oh. it really interesting. I'm an employee of one at this company, so but somebody from the HR department sent me an email telling me that I had a raise. If I just opened the attachment, I could see how much my raise was. Make sure you click on the links that are in there, too. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yeah, I can't wait. This is I'm excited. Find out more by searching the Stacking Benjamins podcast wherever you listen. All right. What do we have for Isn't That Weird? So for Isn't That Weird, we have a story about Jenna Bush, uh, Jenna Bush Hager. And now what we should we need to tell you in case you don't know this is that uh, Jenna Bush has joined uh, the Today Show with Hoda and Jenna. Uh, it's now called Today with Hoda and Jenna. And her nine year old daughter um, had an announcement to make to Hoda because Jenna and Hoda are getting to know each other as they're starting to to host this show together. So her her nine-year-old daughter, Myla, had the following to say. Just one tiny one. <laughs> she never wears underwear. Oh. <laughs> okay. Goodbye. <laughs> we love you, Mila. Oh, yes, we, we do. not wearing it right now. <laughs> <laughs> I saw her change. <laughs> That was her nine-year-old daughter, Mila, uh, really embarrassing her mother, revealing that she, not only does she never wear underwear, but obviously if that policy is never, she's not wearing it right then and there on that very set. Now it's not, I don't want to shame. I don't want to commando shame anyone. But what's weird, it's weirder to me that they announced this on television. Yeah, it's also weird to me that these uh, children of former presidents get correspondent jobs on right. the today show so george that bush george w weird. bush's daughter is a correspondent and also chelsea clinton for a while worked as a correspondent too megan mccain of course was on the megan mccain oh my god yeah alicia Men- menendez on msnbc i think she's the daughter of robert bob menendez. menendez yeah senator yeah. bob menendez yeah do you want to know why she doesn't wear underwear because i looked into this a little bit oh yes please i'm yeah. dying to know dying to know it's for the silhouette you don't have a so-called VPL, visible panty line. Okay. So, and it's such a bad thing to have a uh, underwear line? I guess so. Going? For some people okay. it is, yeah. Wow. Yeah. little life hack for people who don't like having a VPL. You just don't wear the P, and then there's no VPL. Without the P, you can't get the VL. Well, one of the Bush families. And now I just realized Bush. Wow, that's interesting. Mm. <laughs> One of the Bush family's best contributions to humanity right there. Yeah. I mean, I would have really preferred if it had stopped there and not with the uh, Iraq war. Sure. Yeah. This is their way of giving back, I guess, with with life hacks like this. A Bush bombshell, if you will. All right. So for Isn't That Terrible, uh, check out Republican Congress member Mike Gallagher on CNN talking about why he thinks TikTok needs to be banned in the U.S. TikTok is a popular app uh, that is from China. You have a bill to ban TikTok completely nationally over its ties to China 
and because of national security risks. For the 100 million TikTok users uh, in the U.S., including two-thirds of teenagers, including two teenagers I know very well, what information could the Chinese government be collecting about them, and should they delete that app? They should. And I recognize, uh, particularly as a younger member of Congress, this will make me very unpopular with your teenagers and many others. But the fundamental problem is this, Jake. Uh, TikTok is owned by ByteDance, and ByteDance is effectively controlled by the Chinese Communist Party. The editor-in-chief of ByteDance, for example, is a CCP secretary and has talked about making sure all product lines, all business lines follow appropriate political control. So the question we have to ask is whether we want to give the CCP the ability to track our location, track what websites we visit, even when we're not using the TikTok app itself. And increasingly, since a large percentage of young Americans use TikTok to get their news, whether we want them to have the ability to selectively edit that news. It's as if in 1958, given that TikTok is um, on the cusp of becoming the most powerful media company in America, we would have allowed the KGB and Pravda to buy the New York Times, the Chicago Tribune, the Washington Post, all combined. I think this is a bad idea. And I'm proud to say that my bill is now bipartisan. I have a Democrat, Raj Krishnamoorthy, who is joining me in introducing it. We've heard Senator Mark Warner voice concerns in the Senate. So my hope is that we make that bipartisan case. And now, Every member of the Senate is on record saying that TikTok is a national security concern and that it should be banned from government phones. So we're making the case. We have a long way to go legislatively. What does he think is going to happen? Like the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party is going to edit the news offerings of teenagers in Iowa. Don't you think that the Chinese government probably has better things to do than to try to like care about what? teenagers in the U.S. are posting on TikTok. That, that's assuming China even has the kind of control over TikTok that this lawmaker says they do, which I, I doubt, but it's pretty paranoid. I mean, I like the way he uses the 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 Communist Party. He just throws it in there to it's just fear mongering. It's not really relevant what party uh, is in power in, in China. All right. Well, they love saying that they love saying communist party wherever there is one so they can yeah. use that to fearmonger that's an old playbook and meanwhile what's interesting is you don't see the kind of concern expressed about china's potential influence over tiktok uh you don't see the same kind of concern expressed about the u.s government's role in spreading propaganda at home and we just got a new leak about that uh via the twitter file so let's go to just a bit of lee fong's latest reporting based on the internal documents from twitter where he talks about the Pentagon being involved in a huge influence operation using Twitter. So here's Lee Fong, how Twitter quietly aided the Pentagon's covert online PSYOP campaign. Despite promises to shut down covert state-run propaganda networks, Twitter docs show that the social media giant Twitter directly assisted the U.S. military's influence operations. Behind the scenes, Twitter gave approval and special protection to the U.S. military's online psychological influence ops. Despite knowledge that Pentagon propaganda accounts used covert identities, Twitter did not suspend many for around two years or more. Some remain active. Yeah, I would love to see a, a law about that. I'd yeah, love to or, see someone introduce a bill about that. Yeah, it's not going to happen. And if it does happen, it will only be after years of this being allowed to happen and nobody caring because, you know, lawmakers in Congress don't care about domestic propaganda. They only care about the threat of foreign propaganda, real or imagined, but domestic right. propaganda, totally fine. Well, that's part of the reason is because they don't want our domestic propaganda undermined by any potential competing narratives. There we go. Or even corrected by non non narratives, just reality. That's right. But that is our lane. The propaganda lane is our lane, not anyone else's lane. You know, I, it also is a very important reminder to me that uh, we need to be on TikTok, Aaron. Oh, yeah, we're not on TikTok. No, I think we got to do it. I'm on TikTok, but I barely use it. I got to I got to get better at it. Yeah, I've never used it. So uh, but apparently that's where the kids are. Because you're a patriot. Is that why you've never exactly? Yes, that's why. (laughs) That's why. Yes. Yes. It's uh, well, I'm I'm glad that, uh, you know, Jake Tapper revealed that he had a conflict of interest, potential conflict of interest when he revealed his own teenage kids. Use TikTok. That was an important disclosure. It's good to be transparent in your journalism. Good job, Jake. So those are the four basic food groups. Now make sure you join us at Substack, usefulidiots.substack.com, so you can see our Thursday Throwdown, where we bring you your midweek 
dose of media madness. And for everyone else, we're going to proceed to our interview. Hi there. Sorry for the interruption, but are you enjoying this show on Google Podcasts? You should know that the Google Podcasts app is going away this spring. That's right, going away, gone, as in no longer available. You can still enjoy this show elsewhere, though. Try out Spotify or Amazon Music, or maybe TuneIn is more your style. Whatever app you switch to, be sure to follow so you never miss the next episode. And thanks for listening, wherever you listen. We're so excited to be speaking to Miko Pellet, who is a speaker, activist, and author He's the author of the excellent book, The General Son, Journey of an Israeli in Palestine. And in this book, The General Son, which is really excellent, I can't recommend it enough, you learn about Miko Pellet, how he went from the son of a decorated Israeli general and a proud Zionist to an anti-Zionist. It's really fascinating. All right, let's go to Miko Pellet. Welcome, Miko Pellet. So great to be talking to you. Thank you. Good to be with you. So Israel has, once again, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu as a prime minister. How did this happen? And talk about the coalition that he is assembling to rule over Israel once again. Well, uh, I think it was obvious that he was, going, that he was going to come back. I don't think there was any doubt in anybody's mind. The previous government uh, that uh, was formed without him uh, never stood a chance, and it was only possible because of all kinds of coalition trickery that that, that couldn't couldn't possibly have held for a long time. So it, I think his return was inevitable. Israelis see him as really the only grown-up, the only real serious politician, and it's true he is the only serious politician. He's better a better politician and a better leader, you know, than anyone out there in the Israeli political uh, spectrum or the Israeli political reality now. What's interesting is that he had he had two choices. Um, he could create a very broad coalition with the people who ran against him, which would be kind of in Israeli terms, Israeli political terms, that would be considered kind of um, you know centrist, and uh, continue along the path that Israel has been continuing, which is to destroy Palestine, to maintain this very brutal apartheid regime, but do it in a way. That presents uh, that's you know packaged nicely, packaged the way that particularly liberals in America can can handle, can swallow. The other option was to go with the Netanyahu bloc, which are politicians, political groups that remain loyal to him throughout the whole thing, knowing that at one point he's going to come back and they will be rewarded. So he opted for the second choice. He opted to reward these, um, you know. Uh, to, to describe them, they're they're the thugs, they're gangsters, uh, they're criminals in 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 and they're criminals and they're not and and they're proud of it. They're not trying to hide it. They're not trying to look diplomatic. They are thugs and that's it. And he opted to go with them, I think, for two reasons. One is that ideologically, I think they're closer to him um, than anybody else. Now, all Israeli you know, politicians support the racist apartheid regime, but this is a new form of violence that we're going to be seeing. And he's given these people, particularly Ben-Gvir and Smotrich, who are the biggest, you know, the leaders of this gang, of these gangs, he has given them a seat at the most sensitive, most sensitive seats within the Israeli government. The one is basically um homeland security which is now called which is now called homeland security used to be called something else um and it's tailored for ben gvir he will be in charge of the police he'll be in charge of the policing in the west bank he'll be charged with the border patrol which is kind of a militarized police unit that is used against palestinians in the west bank and east jerusalem and the jurisdiction is unprecedented Smotrich is going to apparently have the treasury in his hands, but also a seat in the Ministry of Defense, which governs the life of Palestinians. So between these two men, the lives of Palestinians are going to be governed between these two men, two men who are dedicated more than anyone to the expulsion of all Palestinians, to terrorizing Palestinians, 
and to the destruction of Al-Aqsa and building a temple, a so-called Jewish temple in its in its place. They will have, and in the past, you know, they were acting in order to achieve these goals, but, and whenever they, they, they acted, they could get away with it. Now, it's more than that. Now they are going to be sitting at the table with the budgets. They will be creating policy. They will be enacting um, legislation that will make all of this, uh, you know, at a much wider scale, on a much wider scale. So in a word, in a sentence, I would say, Palestinians are going to be looking back at this, at the, at the years leading up to this government as the good old days. Now, granted, this year has been a record year in terms of killing the Palestinians. They're going to be looking at this year as the good old days. What is coming up is the worst that Palestinians have ever suffered. It's just, it's coming up, it's around the corner. Provided, of course, this government takes, you know, takes, takes a seat. Let's talk a bit more about Itamar Ben-Gavir and the tradition he comes from. So we have a few clips here. Here he is videoed in Hebron, a Palestinian town, which is occupied by uh, Israeli settlers, where he's leading an attack on a Palestinian uh, shop owner. So let's look at this clip. And he's the man in white. So that's Itamar Ben-Gavir uh, leading a mob attack on a, a Palestinian shop owner in Hebron. And this is a clip of Ben-Gavir as a younger man uh, dressed up as Baruch Goldstein, who is the uh, Jewish settler who massacred uh, scores of Palestinian worshippers in the occupied West Bank. And so this is Ben-Gavir dressed up as Baruch Goldstein. Uh, for Purim, for, for the holiday of, of Purim. And maybe, uh, Miko, uh, after this clip, you can translate for us what he says. So that's Itamar Ben-Gavir as a younger man dressing up as his hero, Bruch Goldstein, whose photograph he had up on his wall uh, for many years until there was a recent outcry, I think, that forced him to take it down. But talk to us about the movement that Ben-Gavir comes from and why he worships people like Bruch Goldstein. Yes, and, and I think I think these two clips show two interesting things about Ben Gavir. The first one, you see, he's he's at the back. He's scared to death. He's a coward. He's not up front in the confrontation with the Palestinians. He's in the back, and only when there's nobody around, he grabs that one rail and throws the clothes on the floor. He's in the back, scared to death. So he's a coward. Uh, and the second clip, he says, you know, people, it's 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 Purim, which is kind of the a Jewish version of Halloween. And he goes, you know, people dress up as whatever heroes they choose, a king this, a queen that. My hero is, uh, and he calls him Dr. Goldstein, Goldstein, Baruch Goldstein, who's a mass murderer. This movement of, of, uh, of these gangs is something that was developed uh, when this marriage between Zionism and Judaism became a thing, became real. These are, these are the settlers. These are the people who decided to take over the West Bank after 1967. And they are a brand of Zionism, which is, you know, just, they're just racist thugs. They're gangs. They, they, they operate outside the law. They, and, and they are the law. They feel that they are the law. And the reality is that Israel always encouraged them, although never took responsibility for their actions. So, for example, if they would go, and particularly in Hebron, um, is a good example, because Hebron is kind of like the microcosm of, 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 of the occupation. In Hebron, they would go take over a home, for example, or they would start to, you know, uh, or take off to, to take over a, a, um, a bunch of homes in a neighborhood. Or the government would stay away for a little bit, but it, but then very quickly, army would come to protect them. Very quickly, the electricity would be and the, and the water would be running. 
very quickly they had a road, an access road that allowed them to be wherever they want to be without having to uh, go through Palestinians. And laws were passed, or not laws, military orders will be passed, limiting Palestinian access to these people. So, you know, although the government always would, would always distance themselves from them, they always supported them. And that's why in the most remote parts of, of the West Bank, where Palestinians have no access to water or electricity, as soon as there's a settlement or roads, as soon as there's a settlement or an outpost, as they call it, they have the army presence, they have roads, they have electricity, they have water, they have everything they need immediately. And now what's happened is the government kind of ignored them. Official Israel ignored these people and allowed them to grow. They grew beyond the scope of their own constituency. In other words, it's no longer just these religious fanatics. They've spread into kind of the more secular, what you might call mainstream mainstream Israel and into the, and, and into the army. They have a huge influence. And so now two things have happened. One is that they are actually going to get a seat at the table. They have the third largest uh, block in the Knesset. And just as an example, a few, a few elections ago, the joint list, which is a list of, of, of predominantly Palestinian parties, also had the third largest block in the Knesset, but they had absolutely no authority. They got nothing. These guys are the third largest block, and they're going to get not just a seat at the table, but a seat in the most sensitive, in the most sensitive security-related um, portfolios in the government, which is extremely, extremely troubling. Another thing is these people are also connected to the movement to rebuild the temple. And for decades, they've been conducting tours. And in the beginning, you'd have 10, 15 people walk with them. In recent years, in the last few years, they would have 50, 60, 80, 90,000 people per year joining these tours. I, chose, I, I went on those tours twice. Uh, once when it was just a regular day. And once this summer during Tisha B'Av, which is a the day Jews commemorate the destruction of the temple. So there were a lot more people going and the government provided them with much more security and so on. And so these people are dedicated, they're zealots, they're dedicated and they're going to make the life of Palestinians worse than it ever was. And they're going to do everything they can in order to bring about the destruction of Al-Aqsa and perhaps even go as far as building a temple. We'll see what you know how that how that goes. Um, but that is definitely where they're going with this. They do not see options other than complete destruction of anything that was Palestinian and the building of this new Israel the way they view it, which is a very um, you know completely racist and completely zealot as they are. Miko, you have, are very outspoken, obviously critic of Israel. You support the one state solution, which we'll get into shortly. But I wanted you to just share with people how your own biography influenced your political ideology for people who haven't read your book, The General Son. Well, if they haven't read the book yet, I suggest they drop everything and go read my book immediately, um, obviously. Um, so I was raised in a uh, in a very, very patriotic family, Zionist family. My father was a general in the Israeli army. I had an uncle who uh, was the president of Israel, a uh, grandfather who signed the Declaration of Independence, and other people who were very actively involved in the establishment of the state of Israel. And so the people that I would meet as a child, you know, family gatherings and social gatherings were these kind of people, uh, people who who had this, you know, a seat at the table, if you will, uh, at, the, at the establishment of Israel and then, you know, the running of the, of the country. And then uh, after 1967, which is when my father was he's still in, in uniform, he, he joined, he became one of those people who started speaking about this idea of a two-state solution, where the Palestinians would get the West Bank and the Gaza Strip, and that would be a little Palestinian state, and then everything would be fine. Today, we know that that idea is absurd. It never stood a chance. Um, it was just an attempt to lock up enough Palestinians in, in, in open-air prisons so that Israel could maintain the facade of a, of a Jewish majority state within within Israel. But, you know, moving forward, that was, you know, his uh, 
that was, uh, you know, the rest of his life after he retired from the army, that was kind of where he went. He even met with the Yasser Arafat when Arafat began, you know, engaging with Israelis and so on. And then I, um, I got actually involved as an activist only um, later on, after my father passed away, after my niece was killed in a, in a bombing in Jerusalem, in a suicide attack in Jerusalem. That was the thing that kind of pushed me to really engage. Um, and so I did. And having engaged and taken that, you know, that journey into Palestine as an Israeli, I began to meet with Palestinians and talk with Palestinians and think with Palestinians and protest with Palestinians and uh, and resist as much as I could or join the resistance um, as an active participant against the, the state of Israel, against the occupation and so on. Um, so that's kind of, you know, in short, the, the, the biography and, and what led me to do what I do today. And then I realized at one point, uh, at a very specific point, I should say, that the two-state solution is not just an impossibility, but it was it was a lie to begin with. You know, the attempt to somehow lock up Palestinians in certain areas so that Israel could continue to govern them, but not include them, govern them, but not count them, uh, is really an attempt to maintain the apartheid regime and to maintain the pretense of a Jewish majority within what they call the greater Israel from the river to the sea. <clears throat> and, um, you know, personally, I can't live with that. I can't support something like that. I cannot support the racism. I certainly can't support the violence. And the longer I'm involved in this, the longer I participate in this, of course, the more friends you make, the more people you know, it becomes very personal. So to me, this issue is not, uh, you know, some theoretical academic uh, debate. This is very personal. In other words, when I say life for Palestinians is going to be worse, <clears throat> I mean that for friends of mine uh, who live in Hebron, Isamro, or friends of mine who live in Abisaleh, like the Tamimi, Basim Tamimi and his family, they might not be alive tomorrow. Their home might be demolished tomorrow. One of them might be shot or arrested tomorrow morning. And I have no control over that. Um, you know, I could be in Jerusalem, and that happened many times, while Israel is bombing Gaza. It's a 45-minute drive, and there's nothing I can do. I could drive there, but I can't go in. Of course, I can't stop the bombing. So it's very, very personal. The frustration is, is is personal too, and the desire to do something comes from that, you know, sense of, you know, connection, and the deep relationship that I have with the place and and the people, the Palestinians who are involved. You mentioned that you had a specific moment where you realized that the two state solution was not a viable option. Can you talk about what that moment was and why it's not a viable option? Uh, yeah, sure. So I was actually in the West Bank, in the village of Bilain, it was 2005. And I walked, this is before the wall was built. They're just preparing, the, the construction for the wall was just uh, in the works, uh, right on the, the on the lands of the people in Bilain. And across the other side is a, a settlement called Modi'in Elite, which is a settlement, it's a big city that was built there. And so we walked through that, the well, the area that was to be the wall into the settlement and walked around and talked to some of the settlers. It was very interesting. I describe it in the book in, in detail. But I took a look around me and I realized the settlements are not going anywhere because these are not small little farms or, or I don't know, little villages. They're massively building cities. And we're talking about billions and billions of dollars of uh, of investment, roads and highways and schools and shopping malls for Jews only on Palestinian land. And then it, it kind of hit me, this is permanent. This is not going anywhere. So the one state, the single state option is actually in place as we speak. It's been in place for a very long time. If we don't like this reality where there is a single state, but it's an apartheid state, it's a very violent apartheid state, then the only other option is to resist, oppose that state, delegitimize it, and fight for a real democracy with equal rights. Because why do we need, and I thought as an Israeli, why do I want to be separated from Palestinians? I mean, 
why why in the world would anybody want to be separated and create walls and all kinds of segregation and checkpoint for what why why not just all of us live where we live and you know like normal people do um and i realized that it kind of all came into place it all kind of fit the puzzle that this is actually the two-state solution is a lie and the only other option that exists for palestine is a free democratic palestine one person one vote full equality um and to me that's you know if for people of conscience that it should be the the goal that should be what we're talking about that should be where we're going we need to support the palestinians or you better still engage with the palestinians as part of the resistance you know be part of the resistance resist with them in whichever way we can i mean we you know if we live in the united states or we live in europe there are many things that we can do to participate with the palestinians um in terms of demanding sanctions for example uh, demanding that Israel is boycotted, demanding that Israel is uh, eliminated from uh, sporting events, from academic uh, spaces, from cultural events, and so on, in each particular place. So participating in, I, to me, that is that is a calling. I, I think we have, particularly in America, where we pay so much money to the state of Israel and basically fund to us to a very large degree the apartheid regime um you know we it, it's our duty to stand up with the Pal to stand with the palestinians and demand uh justice but there's no question that <clears throat> there are only two options in palestine calling the whole country israel and keeping palestinians without rights which is by the way smotrich and ben gvir and, and the, that entire group that's what they believe in that palestinians should be given three choices to live without rights and remain, to leave, or to fight and die. Those are three choices Palestinians should be given. And the reality is that, you know, this is true. So we either fight with the Palestinians and resist, or things will never change. This is a reality in, that exists today in Israel. It's an apartheid regime. If anybody has any doubt, you know, there's an amnesty report. It's only about 280 pages long. It's easy to read. And it should be read particularly by Americans who, like I said, support financially the, the apartheid regime. It seems that over the last year, there have been increased Israeli raids on the occupied West Bank. The attacks on Gaza are very routine, as are the attacks on the West Bank. But it seems as if, and correct me if I'm wrong, that Israeli raids on the West Bank, especially towns like Janine, are, are getting deadlier. Am I Am I wrong about that? Has there been an intensification of Israeli raids against the West Bank, or uh, is this just business as usual? And, and talk about what's been happening. No, the the the, the attacks uh, this year on the West Bank have, have increased uh, by a lot. Uh, there's a policy that was put in place, which is to destroy the armed resistance that was developing in Janine and Eblis, particularly in that area, like you said. And so we see we see an intensification of of Israeli attacks on these cities because of that. It's 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 an official policy. In other words, they talk about it on the news. They talk about it in the papers. You know, the spokespeople of the army and the, and the government talk about this. And each particular case, what they call an operation, it's very clear that it's part of this larger, um, it's part of this larger campaign to destroy the armed resistance cells that have been built um, and created in Nablus and Janine. Um, and many of the attacks that we saw. Um, against Israelis over the last year uh, were initiated by those. <clears throat> but no, there's definitely a, a campaign to, to attack and destroy. And it's interesting in that when, when these so-called operations take place, of course, Israeli media is all over it. And they tell you how many, brigade, how, many, how many brigades of paratroopers, how many brigades of you know, special forces, how many brigades of this and that and the other. How many helicopters? You know, it's a massive military operation. Um, if you know, a soldier gets hurt, boom, he's air evacuated. There are helicopters right there. There's a uh, there's a makeshift hospital. I mean, everything is taken care of. When the soldiers get back home, back to their base, they have you know, a good meal, and they celebrate. Who's on the other side? A bunch of guys with jeans and a t-shirt 
maybe an M16 and a handful of, uh, of, of uh, bullets. That's it. If they get hurt, if they get, if they get hurt, they're going to die. You know, they're going to bleed to death. Uh, Israel doesn't allow ambulances to get in and get these people. And many of the ambulances in the West Bank are empty. It's not like a, not a proper ambulance that has everything you need. They're empty. It's just a shell. It's just a van, basically. Uh, but of course, we've seen that there's plenty of images where the Israeli army does not allow them to come in. So you have, on the one hand, this massive operation, military operation. Oh, and there's dogs, too. They have a special unit, a canine unit. And um, I think it was in August. I think it was the operation where they killed um, Ibrahim Nabulsi. He, he was a big hero, you know, a very charismatic leader in Nablus. One of the dogs was killed in the operation. And it was first pay, it was front page news in the Israeli papers that this dog was killed and how many operations this dog had been in and how many lives this dog saved. You know, this whole thing, they built this whole thing around the dog. So they have all this entire military, uh, you know, theater coming in against a bunch of guys with guns that have no military experience, no military training, no uh, real equipment other than, you know, guns that were probably stolen from the Israeli caches, and um, that's it, you know. So the, the imbalance here is so striking, and the fact that Israel prides itself, they went in with all these special forces, and they did this, and they did that, you know, and still they, you know, the, it's, the, the Palestinians put up a good fight. They do put up a good fight, but they, of course, they don't stand, they don't stand a chance. But there is definitely, this year there's been an int intensification of the assaults, on that part of the West Bank, because of the you know the the emergence of uh, emerging these these um, uh, cells of resistance, definitely. There's a uh, film right now that's on Netflix called Farha. It's directed by Doreen Salam, and it's been condemned by the Israeli government. Uh, they've called it accused it of quote unquote creating a false narrative. Uh, can you talk about this film and whether or not it is uh, whether or not it creates a false narrative? Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting. The the the, the Israeli uh, response just begs the phrase, you know, if the hat fits, wear it. it. It's an overreaction, you know. It's like you know, the, somebody you know who steals and or doesn't, you know, somebody's accused of something and you know right away say, I I, I didn't do it. Of course they did it. Of course it's true. The reaction only solidifies. Um, the argument that this movie is absolutely true, you know, and that it and that it is a a small sample of something that was much greater. And I should just explain that the movie uh, in the film there is a Israeli soldiers uh, kill a Palestinian family. Yeah, uh, and that's a, that's what people are objecting to the the fact that this was part of a film. Yeah. Well, you know, there are films that show Americans kill innocent civilians. There are films that show Germans kill them. There's the films that show French uh, soldiers kill civilians in North Africa. I mean, everybody. The, the films are allowed to depict anybody killing others except for Israeli Jews. Um, you know, Israelis are exempt from from that for some reason. So, uh, but yeah, the, the the Israeli response really only goes to show that this is absolutely true. Uh, for anybody who had any doubts, it's a uh, powerful film very powerful uh, i watched it and when it was over i just had to sit there quietly for a while and and you know just sit there i was speechless uh it's very gutsy the way it was done is is is, is gutsy it's courageous uh, um it's not what you expect it's not what i expected it's painful it's emotionally it grabs you emotionally i mean to a point where you feel you know this you absolutely feel uh, what is taking place in that movie touches you, you know, to the core. And it is, I believe, without any doubt, a small sample of something greater that took place in Palestine in 1948 and actually, in fact, continues to take place even today in Palestine. Uh, I, I think it's great that Netflix is showing it. I think it definitely is, should qualify for, uh, for an award of some sort. And I think people should watch it. I think many, many people should watch it. Uh, number one, because it's an excellent film. And number two, because it depicts something that is real, that is true. And in many ways, this, this movie is unique uh, because of the way it was made 
because you know the the the, the drama, the uh, the artistic aspects of it are unique. So I would definitely encourage people to watch it. But again, the Israeli reaction is 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 is, is almost funny. I mean, it, it's the the reaction is ba- the condemnation is based on the myth that something like this could not have happened. Yeah, that I mean, the founding of Israel was not, you know, that there was a mor- morality or uh, an attempt. I mean, Israel says this a lot, that they're always kind of, it's un- so unfortunate that this violence happens, that Israel takes uh, all the precautions it possibly can to avoid this. Yeah, except that we know, because we, we, we've seen it and we've heard it, uh, Israeli politicians and Israeli commanders going to villages across Palestine and saying, you know, if you don't do what we say, it's going to happen to you too. Or saying, you know, Palestinians need to, you know, watch out what they do because we can bring about a second Nakba. So they like to play both sides. And you can't do that. But I think today, with all the books and the movies and, you know, all the information that's out there, Israel can deny the Nakba as much as it wants. The Nakba took place. It's still taking place. The catastrophe, the destruction of Palestine is going on as we speak. And that story, that particular village, which, by the way, is a true story of of of, of one particular girl, uh, could have been at any point in the last seventy five years in Palestine, at any village, in any town throughout Palestine. Um, I think it's commendable in a way that they did it in Jordan. They didn't ask for Israeli money or Israeli, you know, anything has to do with Israeli, you know, funding or anything like that. Not that they would have gotten it. Well, they may or they may not. I mean, sometimes they fund movies that, that, that we w- wouldn't expect. But the point mm-hmm. is, they didn't even, you know, they did it in Jordan. Right. But, and um, yeah, I think she deserves, you know, credit for, for, for the courage to make the movie, not just because it portrays Israelis doing what they did, but because the way that she did it, the way in which she portrays it is unique and, and I think brilliant and courageous. And to hear the rest of the interview, please go to usefulidiots.substack.com. That was really interesting. Yes. And if you want to check out Miko Pellet's book, recently reissued, it's called The General's Son and a very unique experience going from you know being the son of a celebrated Israeli general to opposing Israel's very existence and speaking out very uh, tirelessly about that. And a really interesting guy to hear from. And to hear the extended interview where we talk about the double standards between the celebration of uh, Ukrainian resistance and the condemnation of Palestinian alleged terrorism, go to usefulidiots.substack.com. And of course, you also get our Thursday throwdown, your midweek dose of media madness. All right. See you next week. Bye, everyone. Hello, thank you so much for listening to and watching Useful Idiots. For full episodes and extended interviews, please subscribe at usefulidiots.substack.com. You can subscribe on YouTube at youtube.com slash usefulidiots for clips, live streams, and full episodes. Also, subscribe to us wherever you find your podcast. Follow us on Twitter at usefulidiotpod and use the hashtag usefulidiotspod. Join us Mondays at 10 a.m. for the Useful Idiots Monday Morning Show, where we discuss the Sunday morning news shows so you don't have to watch them. The Ed Milet Show showcases the greatest peak performers sharing their journey, knowledge, and thought leadership. This is one of the all-time best pieces of advice ever given on the show. Actor Rain Wilson. The number one thing that psychologists point to with young people of why they are struggling so much in this mental health epidemic is they don't have resilience. So how do you build resilience if you don't understand suffering itself? The Ed Milet Show is available on YouTube or wherever you listen.